And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to just the one hour show of The Real Investment Show. Uh, last week, of course, we were doing the show for two hours straight because we were filling in for Chris Salcedo. Uh, for 7 to 8 a.m. Uh, Central Time. Uh, back to our regular normal show this week, just an hour, so we have to cram everything in. We got to get done. Uh, over the weekend, of course, lots of stuff happening. Of course, we had an attempted coup in Russia that was resolved very quickly, but it was interesting. Uh, while I was doing a podcast this weekend, this was all unfolding in Russia, and of course, the email questions started to immediately come in to the inbox, and before I could even get to it, it was over. So it just happened very quickly over the weekend, but that was the excitement. Of course, also over the weekend, everybody has gone from, you know, investigating murders and everything else now to becoming submarine specialists. And everybody was doing uh, episodes of how to create an implosion using a Coke can and uh, hot boiling water. So, you know, it's just, you know, we just go through this very quickly. This is a great thing about the internet. Everybody's an expert on everything now. So. Just if you need to know something, go to the internet. It's probably not true, but you can certainly have somebody giving you their opinion about it. Uh, we'll talk, we do have some things. There was some other good stuff this weekend as well that we're gonna actually get into on the show this morning as well. Um, anyway, uh, over the weekend, of course, uh, talking a little bit about in our newsletter, talking about kind of where this market is, kind of where we're going. It's now the end of the quarter. So this is the last week of the last month of the quarter. And so uh, starting next week, of course, uh, it's a holiday shortened week because of 4th of July. And as we get into next week, of course, that's beginning of the third quarter. So we'll start getting into earnings for this past quarter. So what we're going to see in this next quarter, is some very important things, right? Did a lot of these announcements that we had in the first quarter earnings reports come true? Remember, NVIDIA said as an example, they expected to increase sales of their chips or their, or their GPUs by 50% in the next quarter. So that's a high, bar to, a high bar to hurdle in the earnings report. So we're gonna see just how well a lot of these companies that reported at better than expected earnings, did those actually come to fruition? So a lot's gonna be riding on this next quarter, particularly as we get into the summer months. But also, as importantly for this week, and, and we had talked about this last week as well, is that the markets have gotten extremely ahead of themselves and going into this, the end of the quarter, a lot of portfolio managers, fund managers, et cetera, are gonna have to rebalance portfolios to get those equity positions kind of back in line with where they need to be normally. So, uh, for example, if I'm running a 60-40 allocation, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, well, the stocks are probably 65% of my portfolio now if I owned a lot of tech stocks, right? So I'm gonna have to sell 5% of my portfolio. I'm just making up numbers, by the way. But I'm gonna have to sell 5% of my portfolio to get it down to 60%. And then I'm gonna have to buy enough bonds to bring those bond holdings up to 40%. So we're gonna see this rotation potentially. We saw a little bit of it last week, likely to see some more of it this week um, as we kind of go through this, this process. But this does potentially suggest a little bit more weaker action um, this week. We'll see what happens because there is some, some selling pressure that needs to be there for stocks. Doesn't mean you're going to have a big correction in the markets, but again, we are starting to come down. 
Friday, I had that first test of the 20 day moving average. So that was kind of that first level of support on Friday. Markets held that okay. Um, markets are going to open a little bit weak this morning. Nothing dramatic, but we're going to we're going to retest this 20 day moving average again uh, today. So uh, if we break that, of course, the next level of support is going to be a 50 day moving average. That's probably going to be the, the majority of the downside risk here. Short term will be the 50 day moving average. So but we'll keep a watch on that importantly. And, you know, something that, you know, we have continued to talk about for a while is is this rotation potential in the markets, right? So there's a lot of stocks that have not performed well. 20 stocks in the index have basically made up the bulk of the whole return of the index this year. Uh, technology stocks are up by a large percentage uh, this year as well. So, you know, this that there's a potential here. We see a bit of a rotation to other areas of the markets that, again, kind of as we talk about rebalancing portfolios, technology stocks and a lot of portfolios, discretionary, et cetera are probably well extended at this point. Those need to be sold off a bit back to portfolio weight, which will potentially put some money into areas like healthcare and utilities and REITs that have been underperforming this year and are underweight in portfolios. But the, the important thing is that that is gonna potentially happen to get the, to the end of the quarter. Okay, here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Um, as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, we've been on a very strong buy signal for the market and that's been the one thing really kind of driving this acceleration that we've seen in the markets. And we got very extended. Of course, we got into three standard deviations above the 50-day moving average. Again, technical mumbo jumbo, don't worry about it. It just means we'd really gone a long ways very quickly. Markets were very extended above their longer-term moving averages. So a correction was likely. Now, we said that last week that if we trigger a sell signal, that that, that would likely you know, lead you to expect a bit more weakness here, at least over the next couple of weeks as we kind of go through that signal process. Well, on Friday, because of that sell-off, we actually did trigger our money flow sell signal. The MACD is on just the cusp of triggering right now. Any weakness today, and again, markets are expected to open a little bit weak this morning, but if the markets close lower today, even by a small amount, we will trigger that, that MACD sell signal. Now, historically, does that mean markets have to have a big correction? Absolutely not. But it does suggest that in the short term, prices will likely be um, under pressure to, to, to moving higher. So markets could either A, just consolidate sideways, just do a lot of chopping around, kind of like we saw uh, in, in May and June, the markets just kind of chopped sideways for 45 days before this breakout that we saw. Um, so we could see another one of those patterns where we kind of step up the ladder a bit, markets just kind of trade sideways for a bit, work off this overbought condition, moving averages catch up, and then the market makes a move higher, or you're going to get a correction back towards a level of support, works off this kind of overbought condition, gets these sell signals back into alignment to where you can trigger the next buy signal and then have your next advance in the markets. Uh, all of this suggests that the month of July and August uh, could potentially be a little bit weaker in terms of price performance. So if you've got big gains in stocks, probably not a bad idea to take a little bit of money off the table here, just kind of sit back and wait. Again, earnings season uh, could have a, the earnings season could be a little bit of pressure on stocks. I'm not saying that it's absolutely going to be the case. But again, the bar has been set fairly high for companies in terms of earnings and the economy is slowing down. Even though we are seeing a drop in inflation, higher interest rates and that impact of higher interest rates still working its way through the economy as well. So that kind of lag effect still kind of catching up. That could certainly put a bit of weight 
on prices of companies, particularly during earnings season, if those earnings don't hold up to estimates. And again, I'm not saying they won't, but there is that risk that we could see maybe a pickup in some of the disappointment or at least some guidance of companies kind of guiding down here a bit, getting some of this more exuberant expectation of a recovery in the markets, bringing that down just a little bit. That could weigh on stock prices here at least short term again. But, you know, this will all be part and parcel of watching what these signals do. If these signals continue to deteriorate, it is going to suggest a little bit weaker price action in the markets. So that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. But when we come back, I've got a lot of other stuff to get into. Some interesting comments over the weekend about holding assets longer means less risk. And we'll talk about whether or not that's exactly true. Again, this kind of comes from the buy and hold mentality. But we'll talk about that after the break. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Oh, Red, I declare, I plum missed that candy coffee. Whatever am I going to do? Don't you worry, little darling. We'll watch it again on our YouTube channel. Why, Red? Never. The Real Investment Show YouTube channel has all of our past presentations from Candid Coffee and Lunch and Learn to special topic discussions and all of our live show recordings preserved for you. Subscribe now to the Real Investment Show YouTube channel or look for the link on our website at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. So over the weekend, I um, was doing a little bit. Uh, I was really kind of struggling to find a topic to write about uh, coming up. And sometimes you kind of hit those points. You know, we I, I write a lot. And so every now and then you kind of open up a page to start writing a, a blog or a post. And it just kind of sits there blank for a little bit, trying to come up with, you know, kind of an idea. And so I kind of just started scrolling around the Internet. And I stumbled across... Um, kind of this one of these pages where there's a lot of social media kind of aggregation on it and was noticed that there was quite a few of these commentators uh talking you know basically having open debates online um and so they would say hey we're going to be discussing online live uh this particular topic and there was quite a few that you know, they would list their, they would post their topics of debate, so you could see what the what they're going to be debating, right? So, capitalism sucks is one, and uh, but there was quite a few about God doesn't exist, and I thought it was interesting, right? Because, you know, when you start thinking about this and you start seeing, uh, you know, kind of, and again, there was numerous. This wasn't just one; it was numerous. One of these things where they were debating the issue of the existence of God and, you know, the, the whole point of religion. And I thought it was interesting from this standpoint because it brought up, a, a you know, kind of a, an old thesis. Uh, Blas Pascal, who was a 17th century mathematician, he, he famously argued that if God exists, I'm, I'm going to quote you 
this real quick, so I'm going to read this to you. He argued that if God exists, belief would lead to infinite joy in heaven, while disbelief would lead to infinite damnation in hell. But if God doesn't exist, belief would have a finite cost, and disbelief would only have, at best, a finite benefit. What he was concluding, and this said, and whether or not God exists is, is irrelevant. But what he was concluding was it's probably wiser to assume that God exists because infinite damnation is much worse than a finite cost of living in, of being in heaven, right? So when it comes to investing, Pascal's argument also kind of applies to that. So you didn't know I was going to get from religion to investing, did you? Gotcha. And this all kind of tied in because about the same time I was trying to find this topic, I got this question. So the risk of buying and holding on an index in the short term. The longer you hold an index, the less risky it becomes. Also, managing money is a fool's errand anyway. 95% of money managers um, underperform their index. Hear this all the time. And the, and the point of the article was, is, is why should I hire a, a money manager when I can just buy an index and just hold it long term and, and you know, it'll, it'll do fine. And that's a true statement, right? I mean, if you do just buy an index and sit on it, you'll just kind of ride the index up and down. And hopefully over time, um, the index will end up higher. The problem with this analysis is these 20-year periods that occur from time to time where markets go nowhere. So you're 35, you put your money into an index, you hold it for 20 years, you have the same amount of money in the index 35 years later, or 20 years later. So now you're 55, staring at retirement with no more money in the bank. Don't believe that happens. Go back and look at 20, 2000 to 2017. Go back and look at the 1960s and 70s. It happens. Now, there's very long stretches where markets just do phenomenally well, and we're in one of those stretches right now. But the important point is that when it ends, and this has everything to do with valuations, you can go through a very, very long period of time where markets don't return much at all, if anything. And so it's an interesting comment, right? So first of all, let's start with kind of the second point of the comment, which was 95% of fund managers underperform their index. And that's a true statement from one year to the next. In other words, a fund manager who manages a large cap fund, as an example, will underperform his index in a given year. And that's very possible. Uh, if it's a year where small cap and mid cap are outperforming, or maybe it's international and emerging markets, then a large cap manager who's solely invested in large caps and doesn't have exposure to these other areas will probably underperform his benchmark index. He's also going to underperform his benchmark index because the index contains no cash. It has no life expectancy requirements. In other words, there's no withdrawals on, on, the, on the money. Um, it requires you to take on excess potential uh, risk because you've got to be fully, if you want to beat the benchmark, right, you've got to be fully invested in equities. You can't have any other assets. It has no associated, uh, indexes have no associated costs, taxes, other expenses, um, et cetera. It benefits from share buybacks. It benefits from replacement. So a company goes bankrupt, they just simply substitute a new company in and index keeps going. 
doesn't happen in your portfolio. So there's a huge number of differences between an index and what happens in an actual portfolio. Just just the you know managers have to charge a fee. They have to pay for their cost, right? They got to pay taxes. They have to pay for their building. They have to pay their employees. They have to pay all these things. So they have to charge a fee, which an index doesn't have. So right there, an index is going to underperform the benchmark just because of the fee. But it's a, but it's it's a myth that active managers can't outperform the index. There are managers out there who have crushed the index. You might know a couple of them. Warren Buffett, as an example, Berkshire Hathaway, have crushed the index over time. Sequoia Mutual Funds, uh, American Growth, you know, Growth Fund of America. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. There's a, you know, Fidelity Contra Fund. These fund managers have crushed the S&P 500 over the long term. They didn't beat it every year. 95% of them didn't beat the index every single year. But over time, they crushed the index by managing assets properly, right? Managing risk, managing exposure, these type of things. And, and this is the important thing to take away. So you can, you can take this idea, right? I can believe that holding index over time will serve me well, and it may, but there's a, there's a risk to that, which is you get into a 20-year stretch where the markets have no return, that isn't going to work out well for you. There's a cost. There's a risk. And there's another point about this, and I'll share a chart with you. One of the, the uh, you know, going back to the first part of the comment, the comment was there's, there's less risk if I hold an index over time. Have you ever bought insurance, car insurance, auto insurance, et cetera? Well, the more risky your behavior, the more your insurance costs, right? So if stock risk declined over time, the cost of that insurance should decline, right? Because if there's less risk in the future, then there's less risk to that potential liability, right? Less risk of a crash if things got less risky over time. So the cost of the insurance by its very nature should also decline. But if we take a look at put options, so options are a contract that is, uh, and put options are a, a contract that people can buy in the options market that's betting on a lower price of the S&P 500 index. So these are, these are put options on SPY in the money over the course of the next couple of years. So I pick dates kind of going out. And so theoretically, if the, if the cost of insurance, in other words, if the risk of owning an index longer term is becoming less risky, then the graph of these put option costs should be declining, not increasing. But as the chart shows you is that over time, the more, the further out on the curve I get, the further out in time, that I'm buying this insurance, the more costly it gets. 
which tells you that if I hold something long enough, the risk of a crash becomes more likely. I shouldn't say crash. That's a bad term. The risk of a decline becomes more likely. And so this is, this is the point, right? Is that you'll hear a lot of this stuff, you know, spout about in, in the markets, et cetera. And the one thing that we're still dealing with ultimately is that we have a Federal Reserve that's been aggressively hiking rates. Yield curves, 90% of all yields are, are inverted right now. 100% of the 10 economically sensitive yield curves we track are inverted. As we wrote about Friday on our website, so if you go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, Friday's blog post, talking about recession indicators, all of them are suggesting a recession is coming, which suggests that risk in the future is increasing, not declining. Because if we have a recession, then theoretically earnings should decline, prices will have to readjust for valuation, and that means lower asset prices. And because of that, forward insurance is going to be more expensive. And if you take a look at what's been going on with the Fed rates, those have been rising dramatically. We've had a very, very sharp, rapid increase in Fed interest rates. The last time we had as, as this aggressive of a Fed rate increase was in 2005, 6, and, and early 2007. And then recession came in 2008. Yes, we haven't had a recession yet. Absolutely not. Markets are rallying at the moment, thinking that this time is different. Maybe they're right. But if the markets truly believed they were right, the cost of forward insurance on the S&P 500 would be declining, not increasing. So as Blas Pascal said, I choose to believe, as in reality, the sound of eternal damnation really doesn't... Uh, appeal to me. <laughs> Be right back after the break. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So, talk a little bit about the market, of course, and, you know, about risk, et cetera. And, and again, certainly lots of concerns right now about what's going on with the markets. And as I said, you know, there's certainly, and as we talked about on Friday, certainly many indicators suggesting that risk is still very prevalent in the markets. But markets right now are certainly betting on, a new bull market, not surprising, right? We got that, you know, we're up 20% from the lows. Immediately, headlines have been flooded with, it's a new bull market. And we've written about this over the last couple of weeks as well, is that, you know, from all the indicators, certainly we are in a bullish trend right now. The, the October lows appear to be the lows for now. Doesn't mean absolutely those are the lows. We won't know that until the future. But at least for now, because of the bullish trend and because of what's happening in markets, et cetera, certainly a lot of momentum there. Uh, stocks are certainly moving higher here short term. And so we, we don't want to fight that fact. Now, there's certainly some, some clear evidence that we've got a little bit of bubbleishness 
going on right now, particularly with AI-related stocks that have made up the bulk of the return this year. And I'll just read to you from a piece in the Wall Street Journal this morning. Traders are piling into bullish option bets that would profit if the recent stock rally continues. There's been a flurry of trading tied to continued advances in everything from artificial intelligence stocks to smaller economically sensitive companies and regional banks. The activity suggests that the dire outlook, which many investors began the year with, has softened as the S&P has rallied. The problem is, is that traders are almost always wrong at extremes. Now, they're right in the middle. And this isn't surprising. You know, we, we've talked about this before, is that when you've got extreme bearishness, right, there's nobody left to sell. Everybody's sold. So it doesn't take a lot to start getting people to come back into the markets and you start getting a rally. And then, of course, once you get this rally, then everybody says, oh, my gosh, I can't be bearish anymore because the market's rallying. i got to be bullish. And so they switch sides and they all run to the other side of the boat eventually. And then when we get to the other side of the boat, everybody gets overly exuberant. It's like, oh, this market can never go down again. So then, of course, the market does exactly the opposite. So, again, these kind of crowd mentalities, these herd mentalities, they're often wrong at the extremes, but they're right in the middle. So the question is, is are we at an extreme? And if we take a look at options activities, certainly we are getting to levels that have, you know, denoted peaks in the markets, at least short term. Investor sentiment has gotten very bullish very quickly. And, you know, we were writing, you know, in October of last year how negative the sentiment was. And we said back then that that extreme negative sentiment was going to provide the fuel for a rally. Why? Because, again, if you just think about how markets work, you've got a bunch of people over here wanting to sell stuff. And you've got nobody wanting to buy anything. So prices have to keep coming down in order to get a buyer off the sideline to, to buy something. And that's why prices decline. Well, eventually, the buyers will go, okay, they're cheap enough here. And it doesn't take many buyers. It just takes a few. And they step in. They say, okay, I'm going to start buying some stocks here. Right? And so all of a sudden, you get some demand in the markets. So the extremely negative crowd that was all the, that everybody was selling they've pretty much sold everything they wanted to sell. And now prices start to move up. And eventually some of those sellers go, well, you know, stocks are going back up. Maybe I need to buy some, right? So they become buyers. And so all of a sudden that pool of buyers becomes larger and larger and it starts dragging prices up because now sellers are going, hey, you know, yeah, I'll sell, you know, right now the market's going up. I really don't want to sell anything, but if you'll pay me this, this higher price, I'll, I'll sell to you. And so the buyers go, okay, I'll pay you that. And so they sell some. And then the sellers are still kind of reluctant to sell. So they go, well, I'll sell to you, but you got to move the price up to here now. And so the price goes up and then the buyers step up and they'll say, okay, I bought this higher price. And that's why prices move up. And you got to remember that the, the market is just a big auction. That's all it is. So when you have a lot of people wanting to buy stuff, sellers are in control of what price it gets sold at. If you want to buy it from, you got to pay more for it. It's supply and demand. Well, now we've kind of gotten to the point to where all the sellers are on one side of the boat, and sorry, all the buyers are on one side of the boat. There's not that many people left to sell at this point. 
So very slowly what happens is, is that we get into a position where sellers are now in control. And this is going to start putting downward pressure on prices. Now, ultimately, this is how markets work over time. It's just a function of supply and demand. If there's too much supply of stock, prices go down. If there's too much demand, prices go up. And, and there's been a lot of demand on stocks this year, pushing prices higher. And this is why, in the short term, technicals matter more than fundamentals. And, you know, I get a lot of emails. It's like, but Lance, I don't understand why people are buying these stocks. They're, they're outrageously overvalued. Yeah, it doesn't matter. In three months or six months or a year, fundamentals don't matter. It's all about demand, psychology, sentiment, because it's a market. And in the very short term, all that matters is sentiment, right? People are bullish right now. Technicals reflect the sentiment of the markets. Fundamentals tell us if we're overpaying or underpaying for something. What matters long term is the fundamentals. Right? In the long term, fundamentals will matter. In the short term, though, three months, six months, nine months, a year, fundamentals don't matter. So, and this is why people get frustrated. It's like, Lance, I don't understand why stocks are trading at 25 times earnings, whatever the valuation is. And you know, why are people buying them here? It's ridiculous to pay this much for stocks. It doesn't matter in the short term. Valuations matter nada in the short term. Have everything to do with long-term returns. But if your holding period is less than a year, and by the way, the vast majority of holding period for investors is less than six months, then technicals is all that matters. And so that's why we spend so much time every day looking at the technicals of the markets. What is the market telling us, right? Is it overbought? Is it oversold? What is the market saying? Not surprisingly, because of the rally this year, right? And now everybody is having deja vu of 2021 to where, you know, meme stocks were going off to the roof and, you know, young investors who have never been around the market for very long, this is all they know. Oh, stocks go up, I buy options, right? Options became very popular in 2021 because when we started sending checks to households, retail investors wanted to figure out a way to leverage themselves up to the hilt, and they, they discovered options is the best way to do that. Takes me a very little bit of money to make a big return if I'm right. A lot of them lost a tremendous amount of money in 2022 as option prices collapsed. But now we're back. Call options are hitting a record right now as investors pile into call options. And now we're piling into these very short-dated call options just to take advantage of what's going to happen, the price move over the next day. We're not even talking about the next month, right, or the next week. We're talking about z these zero-data expiration options, less than 24 hours to maturity. I'm going to buy these options that mature tomorrow and trade. So it's pure speculation. But right now, optimism is high. Bullish bets on artificial intelligence, back to Wall Street Journal, bullish bets on artificial intelligence have boomed more than 1.3 million call contracts on chip makers, NVIDIA, Intel, Advanced Micro, changed hands on average every day in June. It's on track for the highest monthly total on record. We're not through with the month yet. Those volumes surpassed the exuberant scene in November of 2021 
when the NASDAQ composite reached its peak. Trading activity has more than doubled since the start of the year. And this is according to the CBOE. Calls give the right, as I said before, calls give the right to buy shares at a specific price by a specific date. Puts guarantee the counter of that in order to sell. So people are buying these call options, and the goal is if the price moves above the strike price of the call, that call gets a whole lot more valuable. So as long as prices are moving in the right direction, they're good. But if you bought a bunch of call options last week, you're very quickly starting to lose money because the market is now correcting and prices are falling. There's also been an activity record tied to the S&P 500 index options with one-day trading and calls surging, according to CBOE. The elevated trading has pushed up stock prices of such call options to extreme levels, a sign of exuberance. Fear of missing out is back, according to the markets. And that's right. So as investors, the one thing we need to be paying attention to is this exuberance. This is why we were talking about over the last couple of weeks. We said, look, you know, be a little bit careful here. Take some profits. Um, you're going to have a bit of a correction. Things have gotten well ahead of themselves. Technically, we're overbought. This is why we talk about these things, right? Relative strength. We talk about the MACDs. We talk about Bollinger Bands, deviation. I know it's a bunch of technical mumbo jumbo. I know it's heady. I get it. But these are very basic technical pieces. They're worth learning because it helps you understand the psychology of the market that you're dealing with. So you have a better idea of when to throw your bait into the water or when to cut bait entirely. We'll be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. So uh, last week, because um, we were doing a two-hour show, we were taking questions and comments and we're gonna and we decided that we had so much fun doing that we're gonna start doing that uh here on the show so we'll spend maybe like tuesday we'll do a q a show or maybe on a wednesday when danny's here we'll do a q a show um but we'll start taking um spend a little bit more time taking our questions and so we'll, we'll figure out a good day to do that on and you know we'll spend you know half an hour or so just taking your questions here on the show because you know it was a lot of fun i think it was informative and um, just something different um, and plus helps us answer the questions you're really interested in so since you're on our youtube stream and we appreciate that um, go to our real investment show if you're listening to your car right now we also have a live youtube stream so you can go to the real investment show on youtube follow our chat there put in your questions um, but also you can email questions in anytime you want and i'll try to answer them on the show so we'll we'll, we'll get this all kind of set up and organized here for you so where we have some kind of organization to it, which was always kind of a good thing. Um, 
but wrapping up the show for the day, just uh, again, you know, futures right now, NASDAQ futures are down about 22 points. They've improved a bit this morning. They were down about 40 earlier. Uh, S&P futures have, have recovered here just a little bit, heading it open. But again, um, you know, futures are kind of all over the place prior to the market open. So we'll, you know, kind of see once the market opens, how the market responds. We've had a couple of days of selling. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me. And again, we touched on the 20-day moving average. That was first level of support on Friday. So and, and plus, we had about three, four days of selling last week. So it wouldn't be surprising at all to see this market kind of rebound here a little bit today. But we're probably not out of the uh, out of the woods, so to speak, uh, the rest of this week, uh, particularly as we go into the end of the quarter uh, rebalancing again, kind of I would expect a little bit of downside pressure um, this week. We'll see what happens. But I would expect a little bit of downside pressure. So, again, just be a little more, be a little bit cautious here, jumping into anything. Again, markets are still working off some of this really overbought condition. We're not there yet. We are close to sell signals. That would suggest a little bit uh, lower prices here, at least uh, in the short term, or at least a consolidation one of the two. So, again, just kind of uh, be careful with that. You know, one of the things that we've talked about before and that hasn't really come to fruition yet is the impact of higher rates on smaller companies. Well, we're starting to see bankruptcies start to tick up now. Um, we've had, uh, you know, quite a few bankruptcies here as of late with companies. And we're about to get to that point to where a lot of these smaller kind of small cap, mid cap companies that have a lot of debt are about to have to refinance that debt at much higher rates. And that's potentially problematic for cash flows, for earnings, those type of things. And it was interesting because there's an article in the Wall Street Journal this morning, low rated companies are learning to live with higher interest rates, finding ways to tap the bond markets while minimizing the hit to their borrowing costs. So far this year's companies such as American Airlines Six Flags have issued speculative-grade bonds, according to PitchBook, up 35% from a year earlier um, as rapidly rising interest rates have cut junk bond issuance to a trickle. What's interesting is, is that companies can refinance their debt, but they're going to have to pay a lot more for it. it the, the interest rate is going to be higher. Or they're going to have to offer some other incentives to help bring buyers into the markets. Again, when we talk about bonds, we're talking about companies that are issuing debt. So you're buying debt from these companies going, okay, I'll loan you money. I expect you to pay me back. This is different than a stock, right? When you buy a stock, there's, there's no guarantee of ever getting paid back. You can lose all your money in a stock. It can go to zero. But in, when you issue debt... Right, you are making a promise to pay someone back on that loan, so it's a little bit different. So when investors are coming in saying, "Yes, I'll loan you money," I'm loaning you money for an interest rate, but I expect you to also pay me back. And that's why these bonds are starting to look a little bit different than in some of the recent years. Sixty-two percent of those that have been issued are secured. In other words, they're backed by collateral of some sort. So uh, think about it this way. As, as I go to you and I say, hey, I, I want to borrow $100,000 from you. And you go, great, I'll loan you $100,000, but you know, 
don't really trust you to pay me back. So I need you to give me some collateral, right? So give me your collection of Rolexes. Whatever. I don't have a Rolex, but, you know, give me your collection of Rolexes as collateral, whatever. I, I want something that if you fail to pay me back, I can go sell it and get my money back. This is why when you have a mortgage on your house, the bank files a lien on your house. If you fail to pay your mortgage, the bank says, no problem, I'll sell your house to somebody else and get my money back. That's a collateralized loan. So you're seeing a lot more of these loans now secured by some form of collateral that's doing that. that so that offers investors a much greater protection if the company defaults, and that is easily the highest percentage in records going back to 2005. So in order to get these bonds sold, the buyers of bonds are being much more selective about the criteria involved behind that debt. See, a lot of bonds being sold previously were unsecured. They were just simply on the company's full faith and credit. Apple issues a bond. They're not secured. Those are unsecured bonds. They're not secured by anything. They're, they're secured by that you believe Apple has the cash to pay you back. They do. <laughs> right? But they don't secure those bonds. If for some reason Apple would to default on their bond and say, I'm not going to pay you, yeah, you can go through bankruptcy court, et cetera. But if Apple had no cash in the bank, et cetera, you've got no claim on assets, right? It's an unsecured debt. Doesn't mean you can't get recovery and recourse through banks, but there's no specific asset that you can go attach to and say, sell that asset, sell that building and give me my money. You see, there's no direct assets, no direct linkage. The average maturity of junk bond debt has also shrunk from 6.1 to 6.1 years, down from 7.4 over the previous decade. Companies are giving a shorter leash than historical norms, and investors are starting to think more about duration risk. The further out on the curve I go, again, what did we talk about at the first part of the show about stock risk? The further, the more time I give you, the higher the risk of default becomes because something can happen. See, I can look at your business right now and I say, you know, I can look at the cash. I can look at your cash flow. I can look at your cash on hand. I can look at your deposits in the banks. I can look at your current debt ratio. I can look at your current sales. And I can say, well, I'll loan you money for a year, and I feel pretty good about that because I doubt that much is going to change over 12 months. But once I get out to six years, seven years, eight years on a loan, there's a lot of stuff that can happen. And it's the same thing in the stock market. This is why stock risk really doesn't decline in the short term. It increases over time because over time, things can happen. The Fed hikes rates aggressively, causes a recession, you know, all kinds of things. Geopolitics, break out into a war. I mean, there's tons of things that can happen in the, in, the, in the global economy that can impact stock prices the more time I give you. And this is why risk increases over time and the cost of insurance rises. Same thing in the bond market. The more time I give you, the less certainty I have of you paying me back. The risk of default rises over time Therefore, I have to be compensated for it. How am I compensated for it? Either through a higher interest rate or through collateral. 
So the bond market is telling us a lot right now about kind of what's happening as well as expectations. Again, if you really want to kind of have a good understanding about what's happening economically, what's happening financially in the world, the stock market is not a great indicator of health. It's a great indicator of speculation, right? But it's not a great indicator of health. The bond market tells you a whole lot more about the health of the market than the stock market does. It's also about four times as big as the stock market. Bond markets are the credit is the lifeblood of the economy. And it's all based on analysis. How much risk am I taking by loaning you money? Let me see your financials. Let me see your credit. Let me see all those things that are going on in your company, as opposed to the stock market, where it's just like, oh, look, they're investing in AI. They said they had AI 27 times in the earnings report. Let's buy that stock. Has nothing to do with whether or not they've got anything to do with AI or not, or whether they're actually creating any revenue. Who cares? Let's just buy the stock. See, that's the stock market. Bond market is all about math. Because I'm loaning you money at a set rate for a period of time, I have to absorb all those other risks as the lender. So I need to be compensated for those risks, either through a higher interest rate, through collateral, combination, whatever it is. So pay attention to what the bond market is telling you, because the bond market has a lot of good information about outlooks going forward and what the risk in the markets actually are. So anyway, next year we'll see a, a, a lot of impacts. So there's going to be a good, good bit of debt has to reset next year in 2024. And that's really kind of where the rubber will meet the road. But we'll, we'll keep an eye on it for you. Talk about it as we get closer to that. In the meantime, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Send your questions, comments, emails, whatever we can do to help. Always happy to do it. Our latest newsletter is out talking about the rise in confidence and what's going on between the rise in confidence and the markets. That's on the website now. It's our latest newsletter. Um, also, as always, send us your questions and comments right there at the website. Just click the Ask a Question button. Always happy to help you out. Realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll see you tomorrow on the next Real Investment Show.